0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production.
1: It's one of the worst mass shootings in recent Canadian history.
0: We are following horrific news from Vaughn. Five people killed. The suspected gunman also dead in a mass shooting last night at a condo building.
1: And as we often find in the wake of these tragedies, hindsight is twenty twenty.
0: Residents who spoke to me say that they are saddened but not surprised. Many had described the suspect as disgruntled and say they expressed concerns about his behaviour.
1: Now that enough time has passed to compile a more complete picture of the killer, the condo where he gunned down members of the board that he held a grudge against, and the weeks and months leading up to the fateful day, it is the easiest thing in the world to take it all in look at everything and ask, how on earth did nobody see this coming? But that's not how mass shootings, or mass shooters, work. It's what makes them so difficult to predict, almost impossible to stop before they happen, and so terrifying when you see them anywhere near your community. But are there lessons to be learned from this killer's slow descent towards violence? Are there policies or warning signs that were ignored? And would those policies or signs work to prevent another, different mass shooting? Or are we just fumbling in the dark until after the fact? And is that something that we need to properly grapple with when we discuss what went wrong around these tragedies? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Michelle Henry is a longtime staff reporter for the Toronto Star who often covers crime, including this fascinating story. Hello, Michelle. Hi. This was a really interesting story. Uh, first, because obviously anybody um, who was in Toronto or around Toronto or even across Canada might remember the incident we're going to talk about, but also um, because this is kind of a template for stories about mass shooters and how we do and don't detect them. So I wanted to ask you first, what are the most typical signs of a mass shooter when you ask the experts for
2: them? So that's kind of the thing. It seems like there are typical signs. It seems like there might be a profile of a typical mass shooter, but in fact, there aren't and there isn't. So, you know, what that means is that no one can sort of use a checklist to predict who might be the next to go postal, so to speak. But through my research, what I found is that in hindsight, so sort of after the fact, it looks like there are a lot of commonalities between mass shooters. Mm -hmm. And then sort of in a similar vein, there are also warning signs that, perhaps society should get better at paying attention to that may not predict or foretell whether someone is going to go on to commit a mass shooting, but they might be warning signs of, you know, maybe this person is going to go on to commit violence in the future of some kind, Hmm. you know, in terms of the commonalities, nearly all mass shooters are men, like overwhelmingly 90% of the people who commit this crime, this weird hybrid of suicide and homicide, they have a functioning Y chromosome. They are often disgruntled women-hating men with grievances, beliefs that they, according to to the research, a lot of research that they get validation, external validation for, they often have inspiration to commit this crime. And they have the means to commit it. So they've got a a gun, be it a legal gun, be it an illegal gun. Interestingly, most mass shooters use a semi-automatic handgun to commit the crime. And then sort of, you know, moving over to the warning signs, primarily in men, they are uh, obsessive and jealous behavior, Hmm. sexist behavior, behaviors that isolate you from others, a history of depression and feeling suicidal, a history of abuse, sort of being abused as a kid or witnessing abuse as a kid, and a pattern of being abusive. You know, also, uh, a real warning sign is a recent separation from an intimate partner or a marriage, but that may or may not apply here, I don't know. You know, so it's not that people who display these behaviors are necessarily going to go on to do something bad. It's just that these are not good behaviors. And they may be harbingers of of bad things to come.
1: And that's what we're going to talk about in terms of generally trying to figure out if there's any way to stop these things. But your piece was framed in, as I mentioned, a particular crime that probably most people at least recall, but for those who need a refresher or didn't hear of it in the first place, take us back to Toronto Sunday before last Christmas. What happened and where? And maybe just walk us through it quickly.
2: Sure. Just like you said, it was the Sunday evening, December 18th, right before Christmas last year. Sometime before 7 p.m. that night, this 74-year-old man who lived at the Bellaria 2, a condo tower in Maple, Ontario, sort of a stone's throw from Canada's Wonderland. He put on a dark hoodie. He stuck a handgun, a semi-automatic Beretta up one of his sleeves, and he set off from his first floor unit the halls of the condo. He turned up at the doors of neighbors. It was quite clear that he didn't like or who he thought were out to get him, and he shot them. Over about a half an hour, he killed five people, three members of the condo board, two of their spouses. And at some point before he was fatally shot by a veteran police officer this man also turned up at the door of the president of the condo board and shot his wife in the face. And about seconds later, before he left, he took a step in to uh, the foyer of John Danino and Doreen Danino's home and pointed the gun at John Danino. Both John Danino and Doreen Danino survived this incident. But that is, in a nutshell, what happened that night.
1: Tell us a little bit about what we need to know about him and where he came from.
2: So his name was Francisco Villi. He was a 74-year-old man. He was an immigrant from southern Italy, a city um, called Catanzaro in the Calabrian region. He immigrated to Canada in 1966 at 17 years old with his mom. And there's not too much we know about him from before that. But From the time he got married to his first wife in 1969, right from then, there's sort of a a voluminous court record that helped me sort of figure out who he is, what might have happened here, and why he might have done this. From the get-go, from the minute he got married, he became physically abusive. He beat one of his ex-wives while she was 8 months pregnant to you know probably within an inch of her life black blue and bleeding is how i describe it in the story hmm. at that time he also warned her that he'd kill her if she went to police if she called an ambulance if she went to the doctor and so she didn't luckily she she lived but you know uh he was the kind of person who would call women bitches
1: so when did he move into the Bellario and maybe describe if you can sort of how his behavior there began but then i guess escalated over the years he was there.
2: He moved into the Valeria for the first time in 2008. And from the get-go, he started making trouble. And by making trouble, I mean, he would tamper with air grates in his unit or in the building. He would remove the deodorizers from the garbage rooms in the complex, and then he would complain. He would verbally complain. He would show up at the offices of staff. He would complain by email, you know, constant, unyielding complaints about, you know, almost everything under the sun. He drove staff crazy and sent them on these errands or these investigations into his complaints, which were, you know, to to quote sort of from some of the court documents, always unjustified. He was also mean and rude to them. He also threatened them. He would yell at staff members of the Bellaria um, call them names, threatened to get them fired. But at times, though, I mean, you know, he's he's been described as having a, a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde personality because, you know, at times he could be generous. At times he would, you know, buy two loaves of bread and give one to a neighbor. At times he could be kind. At times he could seem to listen. But at other times, you know, he just seemed to be. Loud, angry, aggressive, and mean, and slanderous. And so, you know, that's what it was like at the beginning. But despite all of that, interestingly, um, in 2010, he still got a spot on the condo board. Where, by the way, he also became a nuisance and had to be uh, forced off.
1: That was his first stint. How did the first stint end and the second one begin? This is a strange twist, I guess.
2: So in 2010, it was a three-person condo board at that time because, you know, the condo was so new and anyone who put up their hand kind of got on the condo board. It was three people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, over time, it was quite clear that he, you know, was an impediment to getting things done. And so the president of the board at the time, a local entrepreneur named um, Dino Callelio, he and Naveed Dada, one of the the recent victims, took Vili out to a restaurant you know, uh, Nino Diversa. And over pizza and brio, they just sort of reasoned with him and got him to sign a letter. And it worked. You know, you know Billy agreed to get off the condo board. Shortly after that, for reasons known only to Billy, he moved out. Hmm. He sold his unit at the Bellaria and moved out. And then, for some reason, two years later, moved back in. And that's when things, I guess, that might have been the beginning of the end.
1: And at this point, um, as you've kind of mentioned, he's uh, displayed some of the signs, the general signs that experts would associate with this. But during the second stint and maybe from 2018 on, there's stranger behavior, right? Can you tell us about the, the smells and, and the kind of stuff that he was doing with the condo board at that point?
2: Dino was telling me that in 2014, when he moved back, buying his unit on the first floor, Dino noticed that Vili had become a little more sensitive to smells, to sounds, to things people were saying. But, you know, by and large, he was still doing the same things. He was still harassing. He was still calling names. He was still making mischief, causing problems. Late 2016, early 2017 is sort of when he discovered social media. You know, that was an interesting point because he began harassing board members over social media, slandering them on social media, but at the same time, also sort of creating this narrative that he was this victim of the big, bad condo board. And he seems to have gotten validation, I guess, Mm -hmm. by the time John Donino got on the condo board of the Bellaria. In sort of you know March 2018, many staff members at the Bellaria and you know uh, many board members found the situation intolerable. But Danino was new, and so he didn't know anything about that. And he also wasn't on social media; he just not that kind of guy. So over a few months that year, you know he sort of learned about Billy's history and learned about what was going on in social media. But John Danino, he's the head of the Amalgamated Transit Union. He's spent 35 years in labor relations. His job is, quite literally, to deal with challenging individuals and their grievances. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't phased. So what did he do?
1: How did he try to deal with uh, this guy that really nobody on the board yet had been able to deal with?
2: First, you know, he listened um, and he was kind, offered to go to Billy's apartment and see the problems that Billy was complaining about. But, you know, there was one sort of incident right when Danino became president of the board where Danino said, sure, I'll come to your, apartment. I'll come to your condo and come see what's going on. But I'm bringing a security guard with me because two different opinions is not even one. And Billy just got angry at that. He said, no, and then after that, it seems that Villy added Danino to his list of targets, slandering him on social media as well. And then also, you know, lashing out at him in person. But in spite of that, Danino and the rest of his board continued to sort of take Villy's grievances seriously. They hired consultants to look into them. And they tried to find solutions. But... Every time it seemed they found a solution, Billy would just move on to another complaint. He'd sort of forget about that one and then move on. And so it just became this situation where there was no way to figure out exactly what Billy was upset about or what he wanted, and there was no way to please him or appease him.
0: My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story.
1: So what did they try to do to get him to stop that behavior? Um, This is where things get to the courts, right?
2: Right. You know, when it didn't work, when they said, "Okay, please stop. You're complaining about the electrical room beneath your unit. We'll build you a buffer. You know, when none of that worked, the um, board hired a lawyer and the lawyer first said, sent some bunch of letters saying, please stop. When that didn't work, they filed a lawsuit. That lawsuit went on for four years. It was a strange one because every time they seemed to take him to court, really stopped his behavior for a little bit of time, gave them hope. But then inevitably, at some point, inexplicably, he would just lash out again. He'd go back on social media, go back to harassing board members and other residents in person, finally they had to get a judge to order him to stop and it worked again for a few months and then he started again to to you know misbehave he was found in contempt of court which also worked for a little while and then it didn't and so finally in late summer last year a judge sort of hinted to billy and to the board which is the board's lawyers that Maybe, Billy, you should try to sell your condo. And that was the first time I'm told that the board and and its lawyers sort of really considered saying, ah, maybe the best resolution is to try to get this man to leave the Bellaria for good. They set a hearing date for that. And that was December 19th, you know, sort of 14 hours after the shooting. So, We'll never know exactly what the catalyst was, but he didn't want to leave.
1: In the months leading up to the incident, then, after the lawsuit had been filed, were any of the members of the board or anyone around him concerned for their safety, given the behavior? You mentioned he's harassing them, he's uh, slandering them online. Given all this behavior, did anybody raise those concerns in a way that could have gotten something done?
2: Yes. (laughs) I mean, you know, everybody raised. These concerns all the time it's just that and this this seems crazy to me but condos these you know little cities these communities are rife with curmudgeonly people who complain and grieve all the time commit mischief and nuisance and Billy by comparison apparently to other problem residents um Billy was like Pollyanna. His most formidable weapon was Facebook. You know, he'd go online and slander people, but he he never threatened anybody's life. He never brought out a weapon. He never threatened to take his own life. Like he yelled, but he'd never hit anybody. And you know, on top of that, he also seemed to be functioning. Like he lived alone. He would stand up in front of a judge. At any of the many hearings he had, and seem coherent. And so, what do you do with someone who has never th- threatened anyone physically, who seems coherent in front of a judge? You know, I mean, you you do this. You 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 just keep on going back to the to the courts, asking for help. You keep on trying to speak with him. You keep on trying to find solutions, resolutions to whatever problems exist, and you. Carry on. You go about your life.
1: Hindsight is 2020, 20, obviously, but in the days after the shooting, how were people re-examining Billy's behavior or their own approach to him, or just trying to figure out and wrap their heads around what, if anything, could have been done?
2: That is a really common question after a trauma. And I think not only in the days following that incident, but I think sadly for the people left behind, you know, those questions, unfortunately, might be a lifelong journey to try to figure out what happened, what did I miss, what could I have done? And, you know, we were talking about the signs. Is there a checklist? And if you look in hindsight at Billy, And if you try to go through that checklist, right, most mass shooters are men, check. Was he obsessive? Check. Sexist? Check. Isolated? Check. Did he have a history of abuse and being abused? Check, check. A history of depression and suicide, you know, feeling suicidal? Check. Grievances? Beliefs? Check, check, check. The means? Check. But when you're sort of living through this, there's that weird space, is this really happening? Is this as bad as it seems? I'll reason with him. We'll do this and it will be okay. Like you just you never know ever whether somebody is going to do something like this. And so one of the researchers I spoke to, a psychiatrist at Columbia University said, "You know, again, there are no there's no shortage of people in the world who check all of these boxes and more all the time and don't go on to commit a mass shooting. They may not even go on to commit any kind of violence. And so, you know, I think that's why for me, it was so interesting to read Canada's Mass Casualty Commission, which I sort of referenced in my article quite a bit because if I can just sort of take you back to the 2020 uh, mass shooting in rural Nova Scotia, this man named Gabriel Wirtman, he was a wealthy denturist, guy who makes dentures and puts them in your mouth. He collected replica cop cars. He drove one of them across Nova Scotian countryside and killed 22 people. And after this, Canada did this incredible probe into what the hell happened and and why and and really how did we miss this how did everybody miss this right and you know they sort of came up with with the same well there's really no way to tell but what we do know we might be able to leverage in a certain way so you know we have to stop referring to violence as this kind of gender neutral phenomenon overwhelmingly it's committed by men and boys, and we don't know what's gonna make a male go on to do something like this, but there is a lot of domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. We do know about a lot of other types of violence that occur, and what about if we take that seriously? (laughs) What about if we try to nip that behavior in the bud? What if we no longer tolerate sexism? in society. What if we no longer, you know, tolerate obsessive and co- coercive and controlling behavior in men?
1: And we don't let them do it for 40 years until it inevitably leads to something like this.
2: Right. You know, if let's say there is domestic abuse, how do we address that? And how do we address it in a way that doesn't necessarily make that man angrier actually? What if we listen to what that man has to say? which was a really interesting thing. But addressing it early on seems to be the way, according to the commission. It's in its, you know, the commission made 130 recommendations. And this was principle among them. You know, let's take this seriously. Let's get society to recognize it. And let's figure out how to get it to stop. We don't know if that's going to stop mass shootings, per se, but maybe it will stop violence of any kind.
1: So we can't predict it based off things on a checklist, but the moral of the story is we can prevent the things that are on that checklist in the first place.
2: I like that moral. Maybe we can prevent them if we, if we start to address them. That's a, that's a good moral, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks,
1: Michelle Henry, and thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to talk to you.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Michelle Henry reporting for the Toronto Star. That was The Big Story. If you'd like more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. That's where you'll find all of our episodes. You can also talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can write to us at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can talk to us by leaving a voicemail. 416-935-5935 is that number. This podcast is in every podcast player. And if it's not, in yours, Drop us a line, we will get it there. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network
0: CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to.